And so since we've moved into this house, everything's broken. It's very big. So it has four different air conditioning systems, four different HVACs that go along with it. Every one of them's broken. There have been massive leaks. We've had to redo the kitchen. Property taxes are ridiculous. The house, $50,000 later, is functioning as it should. But it just hasn't changed much. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest, Dr. Daniel Crosby. Daniel, are you ready to rock? I think the two guitars you see behind me tell you that I am. Amen. For the listeners out there, I'm seeing that we've got some guitars hanging on the wall. And I can suspect that they're not for El Cabong, for the older folks like myself. Uh, let me introduce you to our audience. Educated at Brigham Young and Emory Universities, Dr. Daniel Crosby is a psychologist and behavioral finance expert who helps organizations understand the intersection of mind and markets. Dr. Crosby's first book, Listen Closely, Personal Benchmark, Integrating Behavioral Finance and Investment Management, was a New York Times bestseller. All I can say is respect. I never got to that <laughs> point. His second book, The Laws of Wealth, was named the best invest book of 2017 by the Axiom Business Book Awards and has been translated into five languages. His latest work, the Behavioral Investor is a comprehensive look at neurology, physiology, and psychology of sound financial decision-making. When he's not consulting around market psychology, Daniel enjoys exploring the American South, fanatically following the St. Cardinals baseball, and spending time with his wife and three children. Daniel, take a moment and fill in any tidbits about your life. So yeah, grew up in Alabama, moved to Atlanta about three years ago, did, did some schooling in Atlanta as well. But yeah, huge, huge Cardinals fan. And I'm the son of a financial advisor who got a PhD in clinical psychology. So I've been winding my way towards this intersection of mind and markets for some time. But uh, yeah, it's great to be here on the show. And it's great to be here in this sort of place in time in the evolution of behavioral finance. It's an exciting field to be a part of. Yeah, I have to say behind me, listeners can't see it, but I got a stack of books and there's a lot of them on behavioral finance and the things that we can learn from that. So I'm excited to talk with you today and learn more. Let's get into it. Now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. So I'll cut to the chase and then work backwards. So my worst investment ever is without a doubt, the house from which I am currently coming to you. So it is a, a large, beautiful house. Uh, but I think the fact that I made the investment in this house and I study what I study is indicative of just how weak a predictor education is in sound financial decision-making. So um, to, to set it up a bit, I was born and grew up in Alabama, which uh, you know I know you have an international audience for those. For those of you who are unaware of Alabama's reputation, I mean, it's probably, it's right towards the bottom of the 50 states in terms of pretty much any indicator you'd care to look at, be it 
you know, uh, wealth or educational levels or employment or anything like that. So I grew up in a place that was struggling, but you know, that I, that I was very proud of. And when you grow up in a place that has a reputation for being sort of picked on and being at the bottom of the barrel, it's easy to think that going somewhere else will elevate your life. And so I and my family uh, were living in Alabama quite happily. We were living a very, very, um, uh, you know, a very, very rich life there because it doesn't take much to be sort of the king of Alabama, right? It doesn't take much uh, to, to thrive in a place where everything is so inexpensive. But we always had our eyes toward bigger and better things. And we always had our eyes on, you know, better cars, a bigger house, more impressive subdivision. And, and frankly, a, a place where when you told people that you were, you were from there, they didn't kind of smirk. And so we looked around the country. I can live pretty much wherever I want, just given the, the flexibility of my travel schedule and my work schedule. So we looked at uh, New York and Boston and Atlanta and Nashville, kind of all up and down the East Coast of, of the U.S., and we landed on Atlanta, which, we, uh, which you know, is, a, is a beautiful city of about six million people uh, and is headed in a great direction. But in doing this, we thought that the house was sort of central to this happiness equation. And what's, what's crazy about this is that I have written now, as you shared at the beginning, I've written now three books counseling people to avoid the very sorts of mistakes that I made. I mean, these books say things like, you know, they cite the research done by Robert Schiller at Yale that says houses are a horrible investment you know, shows that houses appreciate uh, over time at about the rate of inflation, even though people uh, perceive them as appreciating at a much higher rate. So over time, they've appreciated at about 2 to 3% a year. But Schiller found that the expected appreciation for a house is 13%. So in, yeah, 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 13% annualized is what people think they're going to get from their house because they fail to account for inflation you know, they just know that grandma bought her house for $250,000 50 years ago and that she sold it for, you know, whatever, $600,000. They don't account for the opportunity cost or inflation or anything else. And so on the one hand, I knew that houses were a bad investment and so that there would be a big opportunity cost in whatever money I wrapped up in a house. The other thing I knew is that they just don't make you happy. I mean, I could have told you on paper that they just don't make you happy. Well, you um, did. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I did tell you in about three 300-page books that they don't make you happy. And you know what's fascinating is for good and for ill, humans get acclimated to things very quickly, whether it's a death or a tragic accident or winning the lottery or buying a big house. All of these things have a short either elevation or decrease in mood, and then we're remarkably resilient. And so the first time I walked through the doors of my house, which is you know a big, beautiful house in a lovely neighborhood, I was blown away. And now it's just you know where I throw my dirty underwear. You very quickly, you very quickly get accustomed to wherever you live. 
And so since we've moved into this house, everything's broken. It's very big. So it has four different air conditioning systems, four different HVACs that go along with it. Every one of them's broken. There have been massive leaks. We've had to redo the kitchen. Property taxes are ridiculous. You know, the property taxes on our house in Atlanta are higher than our mortgage was on our house in Alabama. On the one hand, I can't complain because we go, we send my children to safe schools. We have nice neighbors. The house, $50,000 later, is functioning as it should. But it just hasn't changed much. And, you know, Daniel Kahneman wrote this great chapter called Should I Move to California? Because everyone thinks that moving to California is going to change them. But to steal a phrase from a meditation expert, wherever you go, there you are. And so what I learned in my worst investment ever is that, A, houses aren't, aren't great from just a dollars and cents standpoint. But then even more importantly, work on yourself before you seek to change externalities in your life. There's a great deal of work that can be done on our contentment and our happiness. I didn't need to get a bigger house to get the respect I was looking for. I needed to work on my own insecurities. And, and that's a lesson that I've learned many, many, many hundreds of thousands of dollars later. <laughs> So those are some great lessons that you mentioned. And I think I'm going to summarize a few things that I take away from your story. The first thing is I'm glad I rent. <laughs> you're, you're very wise. My rent is so good here in Bangkok, Thailand. So it reminds me of when I, one of the things that many listeners don't know about me, but I'm a recovering alcoholic. And basically when I was a young guy, I was in rehab for drugs and alcohol and all that. But they always told us about geographical cures because you know, whenever you're in that kind of a situation, like, well, if I move to another place, everything will be better and all that. And they always said, you know, the problem with geographical cures is you take yourself. <laughs> That's exactly so right. Made me think of that. The other thing is that when my father passed away, I was looking through some of his papers and he had a, a simple one page piece of paper and it showed each house that my mom and dad bought and what they bought it for and what was the date they bought it and when they, what they sold it for and what was the date they sold it. And yeah, I did the calculation. I could say they earned very, very little on their houses over the years. So let's say weren't necessarily extravagant. I think also the other lesson that, that I think is really the key to what you're saying is what I learned is money buys nothing. Money doesn't buy happiness. Money doesn't buy sadness. Money is neutral in relation to your emotion. And I always remember that when I was uh, 18 and I had gotten out of rehab, I was clean for a year or so, and I started working in a factory. I made three, $3.35 an hour. I went to the factory every day, an hour ride on my little moped, and then I would go out with my friends and we would go to AA meetings or whatever. And I just can tell you that I was so happy and I had literally nothing. I mean, there was times I had to go down to the church to try to get some cans of, you know, beans or whatever. And I just had nothing. And I just, but I was so happy with my life and having gotten my life back. And so over, over the years, as I made money, I lost money. I've been through my ups and downs in my time in Thailand mainly. And uh, I can say that one of the foundational things in my life is going through that period of time where I had no money and I had complete happiness always tells me that money buys nothing. It does not buy happiness. It does not buy sadness. 
you know, it just is neutral. So I think to me, that's probably the biggest takeaway that I get from your story. Anything you'd add? Well, it's interesting. The research shows that money is buying the, is better at buying the absence of worry or the absence of, of sadness than it is at buying happiness. You know, I mean, there's an extent to which you need enough money to avoid bad stuff. Like you want to have enough money to have a, you know, reliable means of getting to work. You want to have, you know, nutritious food to eat and a warm place to stay. But, but beyond that, that's about it, right? I mean, once you've got the basics covered, there's no real bump in happiness. And my family and I had the gift of living in a different country this, this summer. We lived in Western Canada and we lived in a home that was about less than a third of the size of our home in Georgia. And the cool thing for me was just observing living in this house, which was a nice house, but much, much smaller than the house we live in. Nothing changed. My family still always kind of hung out in the same room. Anyone that's got small children can tell you it doesn't matter how big your house is, your kids are always going to be right underfoot. And so, yeah, just, just living that different lifestyle, getting a taste of that and seeing that nothing changed. Uh, made me a big fan of minimalism, of renting, uh, and of just keeping things simple. So yeah, money can keep you from some level of heartache, but it can't buy really much happiness at all. Right. That's a great, great lesson. It reminds me of my best friend, Dale, who runs our coffee business in Thailand. And we had losses for many years in the startup phase. And after we started making profit and having cash in the bank, he looked at me one night and he says, money doesn't buy happiness, but it sure helps me sleep at night. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, yeah. All right. Well, um, based on what you've learned from this story and what you continue to learn as you do through your books and other things, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Just one thing that you can, for the man or woman that's out there right at your situation and they're just about to do what you did. I would talk to a therapist. This is something you're not going to hear a whole lot on a financial uh, risk-taking podcast, but I am a clinical psychologist by education. And sometimes it's, you know, that's the old story about the cobbler's shoes, right? The cobbler's kid's shoes are always tattered and broken. Um, I would say go speak to a therapist and especially a therapist that has some acumen around talking around financial issues money is so wrapped up in considerations of, of self-worth and happiness and disentangling those things would have been powerful for me and would have led me to a better decision, I believe. Fantastic advice. I like it. And while you're there, you never know what else you'll get from that psychologist. That's right. In, in wrapping up, I'll tell you my, uh, I have a story in our family that's, that has a little bit of Atlanta in it, but in a bad way. My mother's name is Catherine Sherman, her maiden name. And of course, her name is Stotts now, but her father's name was Howard, and his father's name was William Tecumseh Sherman. Oh, my goodness. So you, you all are the ones that burned it down. Well, <laughs> I had to do a little genealogy work to find out that my great-grandfather was born in 1868 and grew up in Petersburg, Virginia, which was after ah, the Civil War, sure. which would, made me wonder, why would anybody in Petersburg, Virginia name their child this name who has ravaged the south but i later found out that he was born in new york originally so that's my little story and i actually have cufflinks that are more than 100 years old worn by my great-grandfather william tecumseh sherman though oh, it's not great. not the sherman that we all know anyways all right listeners there you have it another story of loss to keep you winning 
To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit my worst investment ever. As we wrap up, Daniel, thanks for taking the time and coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for our audience? No, I think this is a great format, and I hope people will, will profit from my pain. Amen, brother. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.